good morning, everyone. Grace and peace from our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I can't tell you how happy I am to be with you this morning. Many of you probably, I would say many, but that's actually not true. Some of you know who I am. But as I look out into the crowd, I can tell that there are quite a few new faces, which brings my heart a ton of joy. But for those of you who do not know me, my name is Adam Jameson. And I, this is, I call Church of the Resurrection, this is my church home. Now, I don't live in the United States anymore. My wife and I, we live overseas in a country called Guinea, and I'll show you quickly kind of where that is. But this is, to me, my church home. So it is a, an extreme honor to be able to be with you all this morning. So I mentioned that my wife and I are missionaries in Guinea, West Africa, and too often we are extremely geographically challenged in the United States, so I do want you to see where is this country, Guinea. Uh, I, I tell people there was a donor one time that called me up and said, hey, Adam, I just want you to know the Lord has put you on my heart. I'm praying for you in Ghana right now, and, and I said, well, that is wonderful. Keep praying for Ghana, but just add Guinea to your list. And Guinea is, is right here on the west coast, in the middle of the horn of Africa. And I, of course, uh, am a priest. My wife is a pediatric cardiologist, so we have been called to serve the people of this country. And today I'm going to share a little bit more about what that means and what it looks like. But most of the time people do ask us, they say, what do you guys do in Guinea? And... There are lots of ways to answer that question, but my favorite response is the one that my five-year-old used to give where he said, well, my dad, he invites Jesus into people's hearts, and my mom, she closes the holes in their hearts so that he doesn't fall out, <laughs> uh, which is not true. He didn't actually say that, but I tried to get him to say that, uh, and now that's probably the only thing you're going to remember about who we are and what we do, but I am going to share with you a little bit more about that. So this morning, I'm going to take some liberties. Uh, I won't necessarily be tied to the lectionary. I want to talk to you about hope, which seems fitting. We are in this season of Advent. The name of the organization that we run is called Hope Ignited. So I just want to talk about what is this great theological virtue of hope, because I do think that it is largely misunderstood. And then I want to leave us with just one example, one way that we, as God's people, can be an embodiment of hope in the midst of a dark and dying and suffering world. Now, before we start, there is one more thing I need to say. I am going to share with you many stories about the work we do in Guinea, and I am the director of a nonprofit, but I do not believe in nonprofits. What we say in the Nicene Creed is what I believe. I believe in the one holy apostolic church. And so what I'm going to tell you this morning is not about what one nonprofit is doing in West Africa. This is about what we as God's people are called to do here in Flower Mound, here in DFW, and to the ends of the earth. Because nonprofits aren't going to transform the world. Amen? I come from Africa, too, so I'm going to need some participation. <laughs> Jesus has already transformed the world. 
And the power that raised Jesus from the dead is now the power that lives in us. We were born into a living hope that we may take that hope to the ends of the world. Alleluia. Amen. <laughs> All right. So as we begin, that's kind of a mini sermon before the sermon starts. But let me begin by telling you a story. So Guinea is, is one of the poorest countries in the world. There is a, a ranking system called the Human Development Index that, that tends to look and try to rank the overall well-being of all the countries throughout the world. And Guinea is always, always in the bottom 10. In fact, right now, I believe it's 180 out of 189. So this is a poor, extremely underdeveloped place. And I share that, and again, these are all statistics, but I want to share a story that to me really helped me understand what does it mean to live in a place of extreme poverty like Guinea. A couple of years ago, I was standing in front of our house, and as I looked to my right, I saw a taxi cab coming down the dirt road, and, and as that taxi cab approached, it became clear to me that my neighbor was inside. So I thought, this is a great opportunity. I'll walk down. I'll greet him as he arrives home. And so I did. And, and as the taxi stopped, he got out of the car, and he handed me his nine-month-old son. And he then went on to, to grab the bags out of the back of the car. And it didn't take me more than a split second to realize that the child that I was holding in my hands was no longer living. And, of course, my heart is breaking. And he comes back around and he, he takes his son and sets his bags down. So I grab the bags and we carry him back into his compound. And right there in the next 30 minutes, we dig a hole in the front of his yard and we bury his nine-month-old son right there. And what struck me in this moment was not so much that this tragic, unimaginable, unimaginable event had taken place, but it was rather the... The, the mundaneness, the apathy of all that was happening around me. It wasn't as if this family, yes, of course they were grieving, but it was obvious to me that this was not unexpected. This is exactly what they tend to expect is going to happen to their children. And they begin living and embodying these stories of hopelessness, stories that say nothing good will come from your country. Stories that say your children are simply destined to die young. And in that moment, I began to realize just even if only in part, the ways in which we as people begin to embody stories. We either embody hopelessness or we embody hope. And I share another story with you that I think serves as an extraordinary counter to this one. One of my first experiences in Guinea was to, to go and work inside of the central prison. And this was part of the ministry that we were doing where we were providing bread to the prisoners. And I remember this was in 2002, and I walk in, and so I want to give you, you've already seen, this is Guinea. Right now we're going to move into this tiny culture, which is the central prison in Guinea. So if you think Guinea is bad, it's probably not all that hard to imagine that the central prison is even worse. And I remember going in here and never having seen anything of the sort. 
and we walk in alongside of a young Guinean man who has been ministering to these men for a long time, and we had brought bread with us. And I remember walking down this dark hallway as he opens up this door at the very end of this hallway. And as he did, I, you just catch this, this unbelievable smell because inside this room was about 100 men. And I'm telling you, this room was no more than 100 square feet. They're literally all over each other. And there is one window at the very top, about 10 feet high. And this is the only way that air or light would even be able to come into this place. And it just smelled of, of odor and urine. And it was too much. I thought to myself, there's absolutely no way I'm going to be able to step foot into this cell. And the prison guard kind of pushed me in, so I went in anyway. And, and, and I'm standing there with bread, and, and I don't know what I'm doing. I'm a stupid kid who, who's now in the middle of Africa. And I start handing out bread to these prisoners. And as I do, they just started to sing. And they started to sing a gospel song. Now, it was in French, so I didn't know what they were saying. But it was a song that the minister had taught them. And they began to sing, and, and it didn't matter that I didn't know what they were saying because I say in that moment, the odor completely disappeared. It was as if incense was rising into the air as they were praising the one true Lord of the world, our Savior, Jesus Christ. How could these men sing? That moment has stuck with me for so long because I cannot even imagine, even today, what would allow men in that situation to sing the praises of God. And of course, the answer is hope. But before I dive into what hope is, let me tell you what it's not. Hope is not wishful thinking. They weren't singing because they were ignoring the realities around them. There was a book. I was in the corporate world for a long time, and there was a book that came out that was really popular, a book called Hope is Not a Strategy. And in the book, of course, what he's saying is that wishful thinking is not a strategy. You can't just ignore the realities around you and pretend like what you want to happen is going to happen. That's not what was taking place. That is not what Christian hope is. Hope is the certainties and the promises of God that what he says is going to happen will indeed happen. Hope is also not optimism. Or I can add to that, it's not positive thinking. And this, I think, is one of the most challenging things for us in America because we are absolutely the most optimistic country that, that probably has ever existed. And I'm not hating on the optimism. I love the optimistic spirit. I mean, that's partially what would send two idiots into West Africa to save the world. And yet, hope is not optimism. It's not about projecting good thoughts into the future that they might manifest themselves. Hope is not the ability to extrapolate from what we see into what is going to come. Hope is about God doing something new in and amongst us. I share another story that I think really helps build this reality. 
helps put flesh onto this truth. In that very same prison we returned not long ago, and there's a few ladies who do a prison ministry for the women in this prison. And of course, in this prison with these women tends to be quite a few children. And these children are born into the, these women's lives. And, and oftentimes, if there's nobody else to take care of them, or if they're born in prison, then they just stay in prison. And we went in to do a Bible study, and, and we gathered all the women, and we went through some passages. And at the very end, we started praying together. And this young boy, about four years old, made his way into the very center of our group because we were sitting in a circle. And he was, his name was Muhammad. And, and as he got into the middle as we were praying, he actually prostrated himself. This is how the Muslims pray. They get down and they, they, they put their hands in front and they touch their foreheads onto the ground. And he started doing that in the center of our prayer time. But what was interesting to me is that what he kept saying was, O nom de Jésus, O nom de Jésus which in French is in the name of Jesus. And I was like, what, what is this kid doing? First of all, he's four years old. He shouldn't speak French. The women in these prisons are not educated. They're speaking some kind of tribal language, and yet here's this child listening in to these Bible studies. And at the end of it, I went up to him out of just extreme curiosity to say, what were you praying for? And he looked at me as only a child could, and he said, I'm praying that Jesus will set me free. And I love this story because here's this four-year-old living, born in a prison, living in a prison. He's never seen a child get out of jail. He's probably never even seen an adult get out of jail. And yet as he hears the stories of who this person Jesus is, he knows that Jesus is powerful enough to set him free. And I love that because that's hope. Our hope is not contingent upon our realities. It's not contingent upon our circumstances. It's contingent upon the one who can set us free. Alleluia. So what is this hope? What are these promises? And I love this because really what we see here is that hope is about this embracing of the promises of God so much so that they become more real to you than what you see. Take that with you. Hope is about embracing the promises of God so much so that they become more real to you than the realities that are staring you in the face. And so what is these promises? What is this hope that we have? And we read it this morning in Isaiah 65 that God will bring a new heavens and a new earth. He will wipe away every tear all pain and all suffering will no longer exist. And he reiterates this exact thing in Revelation 21. And I know many of you have heard it. I read this to myself every morning as a way of reigniting hope in my life. So let's read it together. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first, there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, 
beautifully dressed for her husband. And I hear a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and he will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order has passed away. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth. There was no longer any sea. We were repeating this. My apologies. The new heavens and the new earth is coming. And it is this moment when God will do something new in and amongst us. He will transform this world, infused as it is with suffering, into something new. And this vision is really nothing short of extraordinary. And all of us in this room have experienced enough of the suffering and pain of this reality that when we read that, we can long for the day that that will be true. But these promises are nothing more than utopian dreams if we do not understand, know, and have encountered the person of Jesus Christ. Until we've encountered the living God of hope, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who raised Israel from Egypt, who brought heaven and earth together in the person of Jesus Christ, who took the sins of the world and buried them. And as he rose again in his new glorified body, what we begin to see is that there is already amongst us a new heaven and a new earth in the person of Jesus Christ. It has already started. The promises that God has in front of us are promises that keep us going. But the reason we can believe in those promises is because Christ has already made good on those promises. And through the power of the Spirit, we can live into this new world as those who are embodiments of hope. And this is why Paul will say in 2 Corinthians, all of those who are in Christ are what? New creations. And Peter will say, all of those who put their faith in Christ have been born into what? A living hope. And we now get to embody that hope in the midst of the suffering and the pain and the hurting of this world. That is our calling as Christians. That is the gift that God has given us that we now get to participate in that reality because we don't just sit and wait for that new day to come. We actually begin to fight to bring those promises into the present. Don't miss that. The promises that God has laid out in front of us are now, through the power of his spirit, breaking through throughout the world. New creation is happening. And we now, as the embodiment of the hope that he has given us, get to participate in those realities, to bring those future promises into the present. And of course, it's extremely hard 
And it's extremely difficult to be the kind of people who are ready to make those promises real inside of the world we're living, as the psalmist says. And in fact, I'll tell a story because I'm going to tell you how you can be that. But I remember when the Lord called us to in, what, 2017, I was working uh, as an executive inside of a Fortune 500 company living in Paris, not too far away from the Eiffel Tower. Now, we knew when we got there that God had already called us to Guinea. But as the time came, we were like, are you sure this is what God wants us to do? We're going to leave this? And people always say, oh, Adam, it's amazing. You guys have so much faith to do this. And the people who know me well, my family know this as well. When I quit my job and I began, God was like, all right, now I want you to go around and ask people for some money. you got to be kidding me. Literally, my whole body started. I got shingles. I was 39 years old. I had impetigo all over my face. Like, my body was, like, breaking down. When my wife would come in, I'd be like, don't look at me. I'm hideous, like Kramer. My whole body was literally breaking down. I had so much anxiety and stress. And now I start knocking on doors being like, you think maybe you could, you could support us to, to go to Africa? And we just had a PowerPoint. That's it. We, we thought we knew what we were going to be doing. And, and yet I was just blown away because many of the doors that we started knocking on started in this church right here. And when I encountered that, I began to see that there was this level of hope amongst the people of this community that said, yeah, what I thought they were going to say is, Adam, you're an idiot. You don't speak French. You don't know anything about Africa. What are you going to do over there? And yet nobody said that. They're like, if that's what God is calling you to do, if he's calling you to show up in the middle of West Africa, then I'm going to help you show up. And I love it because as we read in Isaiah, there's this new world coming. What did it say? Where children, no longer will children live only a few days. And here this community said, Adam, that's the hope we have. So go into Africa and show the people there that that's true. That their children aren't destined to die young. Because that is the hope that we have. And when we take that leap of faith, when we step into the darkness of the world, God in his mercy shows us time and time again that his new creation is already happening. And I'll show you now the center. How do we know this is true? Because a miracle has absolutely happened. We opened a pediatric center of excellence, a 25,000-square-foot hospital for children, the very first and only in the country in May of this year. We've seen over 4,000 patients. There's literally too many stories to count. Here's a few that I'll, that I'll give you anyway, though. As we look at this next picture, we, we begin to see here's a child. His name is Adrian. Adrian came in because he has a hole in his heart. And I won't pretend to know all the real words. If you really want to know what happened, you can ask my wife. But he has a hole in his heart. He can't, his heart is not functioning the way that it should. And he comes into our center. My wife is able to care for him, get him the surgery that he needs. And here's a beautiful picture of, of him and his father, of a child that now has a second chance. And there's more than that. There's another one of Muhammad, a young kid who came in with tuberculosis of the lungs and of the bones. This kid couldn't even walk. He wouldn't get out of this chair. He wouldn't let anybody touch him. 
And yet our staff was able to come around him, show him the compassionate love of Christ, bring healing into his life. And now he comes just to hang out with our nursing staff, and they love him. And there's so many stories. There's promises that say the children are not going to live only a few days. So what do we do as God's people? We go in and show them that that's what we believe. And more than that, there's even a chapel in the very center of this space that shows a country who is 95% Muslim that the compassionate care, the love that they're receiving comes as a service of the church of which Jesus Christ is the head. Amen? This doesn't happen because some nonprofit organization went to Guinea. This happens because God's people, the church, said that the promises that God has given us are more real than the realities that stare us in the face. So we will show up in the midst of that darkness. And when we do, God shows us miracles like that. And yet the truth of the matter is that the new world has not yet come. And there is pain and suffering and death that we see. We share the beautiful stories, but what we don't often share are the horrible ones of the amount of death and suffering that we still see. And yet as God's people, what are we called to still do? Show up. Even when there's nothing that we can do. And this is why we have a, a follow-up team that is literally all they do is go into the homes of the, of the families that have lost their children. Not to fix it. There's nothing you can fix. But to sit with them in their pain to say, you are not alone. And I love this quote that I'm going to read to you from Sam Wells. And he says that when we do that, when we even show up when there's nothing that can be done, the presence, our presence, seeks to say, you may fundamentally know in your echoing pain or fear that you are not alone. This is the most important thing that we offer one another in times of hardship and distress. This is the heart of acts of mercy. When you're hungry, I might not be able to get you a job, but I will not turn my back on you. When you're a stranger, I will not forget you. And when you are sick, I will sit by your bedside. And when you're in prison, I will write and wait and remember and visit you. And that is the fundamental way that God engages suffering. Not by fixing it, not by re-narrating it, but in being with us in the incarnate Christ. And in those whom in the power of the Spirit, God indwells in order to be beside us. Christianity is most transparently embodied when disciples imitate Christ's incarnation and show up among those on whom the world has turned its back, whose suffering the world cannot bear to see. It's not about having the solution or the answer, but about being present even when you have no things to do, actions to offer, or words to say. And this ability to show up, to be present in the darkest, most difficult situations of the world and in people's lives is an ability made possible only through hope. 
a hope that gives us a strength to be present even when there's nothing that we can do because we believe in the promises of the faithful God who said that our reality infused as it may be with suffering and pain will one day be transformed and is being transformed now through the power of the Spirit. So I share this with you all this morning to say quite literally, we as God's people are the only ones who have the ability to show up in these dark places because we have a hope that tells us that the darkness is not what's real. It's the promises of God that is real. So I end by saying this, the hopelessness in a place like Guinea It's easy to see. I mean, it's even easy to understand. The realities around them are so dark that it's obvious to anyone why despair and fatalism become the way that they live their lives. But what what strikes me, however, is what's happening here in the U.S., that there is a sense of hopelessness that continues to grow in this country. And we've talked to so many people cross-generationally who have said, Adam, you don't understand that this place is without hope. They're worried about what's going to happen. They're worried about the future of this country, the future of their children in this country, future generations. And it's a hopelessness that I say is too often born from the belief that what we now see is that the world is too big, it's too dark, it's too scary. It's too broken. There's absolutely nothing that we can do. And in Guinea, they say that because they have nothing. Here we say it because we have everything. And we say, I can't do anything about it, so what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to create my own little beautiful, comfortable world over here where I don't have to see the pain, the darkness, and the discomforts of the world. I'm going to stay in my little bubble, make my life about me and what I can do to avoid the darkness of the world. And that is the epitome of embodying hopelessness. The work that we do in Guinea, we say that as an organization, we seek to embody a new story that despite the darkness that surrounds them, allows the people of Guinea to choose hope. So I leave that with you this morning because I stand here telling you, Church of the Resurrection, choose hope. Choose to show up in the midst of the pain and darkness of this world. Let your eyes see and your ears hear the cries because they exist and then show up in them. And if you don't know where to go, then find me afterwards. I can tell you where to go. But I know that there's many of you in this room that already know exactly where that's supposed to be. So I encourage you, I plead with you as God's people, show up and choose hope.